Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the Should You Before You Die podcast. This week, we'll be answering the question, should you read Jonathan Franzen's The Corrections Before You Die? And I am lucky to once again, I believe for the fifth time, be joined by a partner in crime, Professor Chris Ingram. Chris, welcome back. Chris, welcome back. Hey, Josh. Thanks. Uh, Folks have heard Chris for several hours in this podcast. Um, He's an excellent guest. I will say this podcast is right in his wheelhouse as Jonathan Franzen is one of the passion projects in his life. Correct, Chris? That's right. Yeah. I, uh, I wrote my master's thesis on Franzen. Oh, all right. All right. I, I, I haven't read a lot of his, uh, stuff in a while, but, uh, it's still fresh. All right. So I think the corrections, I think is his most famous book, but we do want to talk about, all three of his books of the 20th century. So it's Corrections Written, published a week before 9-11. I want to talk about that. Freedom in 2010 and Purity in 2015. So Chris, let's set this, why don't you set the stage for the listeners? Um, the Corrections comes out in September 4th, 2011. We are, I don't know, what, 22 years already out of college. What is the context for the book and like, why is it called The Corrections? Yeah, so great question. So the, the backstory behind the book is really as interesting to me as the book itself. Pope Franzen was one of these sort of highly acclaimed young novelists at, straight out of college. And his first book, The 27th City, uh, was, it, it was widely reviewed it, and, and reviewed well. It led to like a Vogue cover shoot, not cover shoot, but a Vogue photo shoot, like spread. Uh, he got a lot of press, a lot of attention. Uh, and his second book, Strong Motion, uh, was similarly successful and sort of established this reputation as here's an up-and-coming voice. This is a new person on the scene, has something to say, says it in a compelling way. He's grounded in the long tradition of literature, and so he's part of this sort of history of American literature. But Franzen uh, was very frustrated with, from his standpoint, the failure of these early novels to sort of infiltrate the public imaginary and become uh, something that people talked about and uh, really sort of got under the skin of, of America as a whole. So he ends up writing this essay that was published in Harper's. And uh, it's a fairly cynical essay, but it's, it's autobiographical in that it walks us through the process of him becoming disillusioned about this dream of being a so-called American novelist, where you kind of have your finger on the pulse of society and you write this great social realist novel that tries to account for the complexities and problems with American society at large. And he says, although I've had some success, I'm beginning to think that maybe that ambition is misguided to begin with. Uh, And what he sees instead are these more sort of regional or balkanized approaches to American literature where you might have um, people from, I don't know, different uh, minority groups, different uh, identity formations, uh, different topical focuses, writing books. And so there's black literature, there's queer literature, there's feminist literature, there's all these different things, but some overall overarching American literature sort of dropped from the scene in his view. 
And Franzen says the last book to really get under the public's imagine into the public skin really uh, was Joseph Heller's Catch Twenty Two from whenever that was, nineteen sixty one or something. Uh, and so he sets up this problem for himself that it's hard to write a overarching classic American novel anymore. Uh, not even classic, but one that sort of has its finger on the on the moment because society's evolved so quickly. There's so many facets to it. You can no longer be up to date in the form in the literary form of a novel, which is slow. And so there are more appropriate media forms to sort of capture the moment than the novel. Nevertheless, he sets about to correct that problem in a book that tries to be this, tries to be this sort of overarching American story. Uh, and so that's that's one of the reasons it's called the corrections. He's trying to correct for this problem that he sees. I see three other reasons why it's called why it's called the corrections. Tell me if you agree with these. No, number one, uh, it's a correction from like the from the nineteen nineties, like dot com boom. It's like literally like a market correction, right? Like, which is funny or not funny. It's interesting because nine eleven happened a week after it came out, right? It was like the nineties was a time of peace and prosperity, depending on your perspective, but. It's kind of a correction to that. Number two, uh, it's the correction to kind of like the hysterical realism of like the day of Foster Wallace's, the pensions and Delillo's that kind of ruled the eighties and nineties, despite his clear, uh, love and respect for those writers. So he had a straightforward kind of family drama. No, 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 not that many fancy words. Um, it's like a return to kind of like, uh, the great American kind of like, uh, a focused novel. And three, it's an homage to the recognitions by William Gaddis, which is his own podcast, but I, I have read both and don't see much of a tie there. Um, but clearly the name uh, has a tie. How do those three, three uh, things strike you? Uh, strike you? That, those, I agree with all those. I think certainly at the, um, you know, the correction, the dot-com boom, this is a, a book that recognizes its time in history. It's very much a novel of the 90s. Uh, also, the um, the the recognitions thing, I think Franzen is a writer for whom it's important to uh, very deliberately situate himself relative to other book, great books that have come before him. And so ways to do that are to sort of make nods to that in, uh, in the title and so on. Uh, in terms of the, the hyper, hyper-realism or the, the stuff you see from Pynchon and DeLillo, I think he he understands that that kind of work reflects the, the frenetic pace of American life and contemporary life in general, and the inability to have sort of this quaint uh, novel that's uh, really engaging with the, what it feels like to be in America. Uh, so I don't doubt for a second that, that that's part of the correction that he's doing. But he also, maybe this is exactly what you're saying, uh, is trying to veer us back towards something that's grounded in the family, in people, in the context. So I don't know. We th- we've talked, Josh, about Underworld, Delo's book, mm-hmm. in, in in our in this podcast. And uh, one of the things we said about that was that it's a brilliant book. We love it, but really, just read this first section uh, about the, uh, the baseball game. And part of that is because, in, at least in my reading of it the characters don't jump off the page. It's more the cultural context that's what makes the book so rich. But that cultural context is still not grounded in 
the human experience enough to an individual human experience enough to make it feel like it, it it's that trenchant or something. So, uh, and that's the gift of Delillo that he can sort of be at the sort of stratospheric level while also getting down into the particulars. But Franzen wanted to do both. He wanted to ground characters in a context. And so that's why you have this family. That's a microcosm for the American family at large. Of course, we could talk about how it's really just like a white upper middle class family of privilege. Um, but I think that's certainly part of the scene, part of the, the corrections that he's getting at. Yeah. So did you love the book? I did. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a must read. I think for the most part, it, it achieves a lot of the things it sets out to do. I think it'll stand up for years too. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I always like putting him in like counter counterpose to David Foster Wallace, whom he clearly had like a, a truckload of respect for. Um, so this book is almost written almost like without a style. Uh, we can talk more about purity, his, the, you know, the third book of this kind of tr- trilogy, although it's not, um, but that book is almost completely devoid of style, but this is kind of just like a straightforward telling. Um, but there's a lot of cool ideas in there. Um, I remember one scene where the main character goes to the airport to pick up his parents and he's got, he's like, he's like our age. He's like 40 something. He's got some resentments. So he shows up at the airport wearing leather pants to piss off his parents for whatever reason. And two, he, when they walk out of the plane, he's like staring at them and he's, and he narrates like they look like any other older couple uh, in the world, except that they're killers, (laughs) even though that they aren't. Um, Yeah. It's another, another like I'm babbling, but another like kind of like a paradox of Franzen is like, he positions himself as kind of like the writer of the people, but yet he is very highbrow. His stories are very white. He doesn't have kids. And he, I think he's admitted that he doesn't know how to write about kids because he doesn't have them. And he's kind of giving up. Um, So he's definitely like a complicated guy. You've met him, right? You've hung out with him? Well, yeah. So um, part of my job here at University of Utah is uh, I'm in the faculty of the Environmental Humanities Program, and we give out a big award every year. Uh, give it to me. We gave, we gave it to Franzen last year because of an article, primarily because he's done a number of uh, sort of nonfiction pieces about climate change and so on, but he did a piece for The New Yorker that, re- that listeners may have read uh, about um, call, called "Let's Stop Pretending" or "Why Don't We Stop Pretending?" I think. I read that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it was a controversial argument that basically says, "Look, it's too late to save the planet, um, so we need to focus on uh, if we if we keep saying we can, we're going to stop focusing on the things that we need to be focusing on instead to uh, have meaningful conversations, to uh, make the lives of animals." more happy while we can to uh, prepare for uh, more stable societies down the road when things get crazier and so on. So anyway, so, so we gave this award, he came out, I had dinner with him uh, and a few other people. And uh, he was, he was quiet, then opened up by the end of the dinner and was a lovely person to interact with. Um, I, I'm trying to think of juicy tidbits. Um, He's very handsome, very well dressed. <laughs> he's very soft spoken. Well, you know, well dressed. I mean, he's he's a Midwesterner who lives in California now. Uh, seems to be really serious about his work, and uh, and committed to it. Uh, an example of that seriousness is he seems to be pretty fastidious about getting details right, and the details really really matter. 
So he uh, he said he'd never worked with an assistant before, but um, over the last several years, uh, he developed a correspondence with a prisoner uh, who had read one of his books. And you know, prisoners have not much to do, so they sometimes write out, write out to famous people. And he started this exchange with this prisoner, and now the prisoner's re- been released and does research for him. That's and, cool. And and so one of the research things he did was he, he was there's a part in this new trilogy that Frandon's developing that he said it was his last um, work of fiction that he's going to publish, and he had to find out a, a part of a car that broke in a, in a scene or something like that. I, I don't know exact details. But it, it had to think about the exact right type of part and had to get this the cars not produced anymore. And so it had to have this guy help him track down what that part would be called, where he would find it, that sort of thing. And then how did you guys in it? Didn't he, didn't he tell you that you had a lot in common and you were like, I'll be flattered? <laughs> so I, I was pretty quiet at dinner and just sort of, you know, floating into the conversation when it came necessary. But then the guy who's the the host, uh, Jeffrey McCarthy, who runs the uh, EH program, he he said, now, John, you may not realize that Chris wrote his master's thesis on on you. And then we were like about ready to get the check. And then we stayed for another 45 minutes chatting. And then at the end, uh, uh, Franzen just said, Chris, it seems like we have a lot in common. And I I was weirdly flattered. And the thing you have in common is he's in love with himself and you're in love with him. I'm kidding. Um, um, let's, let's, let's come back to their judgment on the corrections and then let's, let's move on to talk about freedom, which came out nine years later. Um, I love this book. Um, I think it's kind of an homage to Philip Roth's American pastoral, which is one of my favorite of his books where uh, in American pastoral, there's this guy, the Swede and he's handsome and he was a football star and he's a beautiful wife. And they're like upstanding members of this, of, of a community in up in uh, Northern Jersey. But then his child, his daughter, I believe becomes a terrorist, a Jane. And she, she commits like a, she commits a bombing and it's kind of like the shame and the public scorn that, that goes with it. Similar here in freedom, but like on a smaller scale where there's like this wealthy liberal family um, and they're pretty woke and they're, they're trying to say all the right things. And then their son, like uh, who's like 16 starts like dating um, this conservative family's daughter next door. And then he actually like moves in with her because he can't stand his family anymore. And it's like a shock. Um, Chris, how, what did you think of this book? I enjoyed the book. I, it was, uh, it, to me, it's not on the same level as the corrections, but that's in part because it doesn't have such a rich backstory as the corrections. You know, we haven't even talked about the Oprah Winfrey thing. Uh, that, but And this one just, it was sort of the follow-up to that. Why don't you tell the listeners what the Oprah Winfrey thing is? Because some people are, are too yeah, young to know. So uh, back in the 90s, uh, Oprah Winfrey used to have a book club. And she still does it now, but it's scaled down from what it used to be. And she would select a book and the publishing company of that book would stamp it with uh, a sticker or a printed seal of some kind that said Oprah book club selection or something along those lines. And those books would make shit loads of money because of that seal, right? That's right. So, so when Franzen, Franzen's, Franzen's publisher for the correction was FSG first or Strauss and Giroux. And when he found out that he got the Oprah book, uh, 
And it's not like he applied or anything. She just chooses it. Um, they printed an additional 600,000 copies of the book immediately. So, I mean, that's just like a staggering number of books uh, just from Oprah. And then, of course, the lifespan of that isn't just from that print run. They do subsequent print runs down the road. And so what's a, such a big deal about this is not just that he got selected. It's that he turned it down. And he turned it down uh, on the apparent basis that he thought uh, he wanted he didn't want to be associated with this sort of middle brow um, housewife reader. He wanted to be associated, and this is his quote, high art literary culture. That's the tradition that he saw himself right working. Well, and Oprah's books were not all just like chief fiction. There was some like Zora Neale Hurston. It wasn't just like a, you know, like an airplane fiction type of list. That's right. That's right. One of the arguments Franzen made was that he wanted with the corrections very deliberately to try to connect with male readers. Uh, the vast majority of readers of fiction in America are women. And uh, he wanted to try to get some more male readers. And uh, he said that he had heard from a number of people that, uh, like, for, for example, at book signings or something, that uh, they would never read an Oprah book because it was a number of guys that they would never read an Oprah book because they associated it with women's literature or something. So anyway, these are some of the, like, public snippets of how he's weighed in on the issue of, around the time. Uh, he seemed pretty bashful and, and mortified about how it all went down mm-hmm. uh, when I since then and, and when I saw him. I mean, it's kind of, it's like I said earlier, the paradox of Franzen where he's like, this book is a correction to the hysterical realism of Dear Foster Wallace and Pynchon. It's a straightforward American story, but you know what? It's also like too good <laughs> for a lot of those people to read it. <laughs> it's like trying, trying, trying to thread the needle. needle. So, so on that correction point, uh, so he was friends with David Foster Wallace. He s- saw Infinite Jest come out, read it, and he had been working on the corrections for several years, and he basically started from scratch after that. Because after Infinite Jest, mm. Infinite Jest dropped, Franzen said, I have, to, I have to make a better book. That's cool. Anyway, so as you, what were you saying about Oprah in the context of freedom? Sorry, we're jumping around. Yeah, um, well, just that this book doesn't have the same rich backstory. It's just like, okay, here's now this author who's become controversial. He's become immensely famous. I mean, we're talking cover of Time magazine, great American novelist was the caption on the cover and uh, translated in multiple languages. Books are written about him. And here's his next book. And in that, in the context of that bigger sort of scenography, it was a letdown for me. I, I, I still think it's a great book, but uh, it, it almost inevitably, it's like the like second album jinx of a band or something. Uh, it's hard mm. to live up to early hype. So um, I enjoyed it. I think. Uh, it's very sexy. I, that's where you can begin to see him taking some more overt sort of environmental positions. He talks about oh, human population, us needing to like not make babies anymore. Uh, he begins to do this naturalist thing, you know, bird watching. Uh, which is a huge part of his life now and and his books and writing. So those were elements that uh, I think for me were the, the standout parts. Yeah, there was some neat stuff in there about kind of the, like the challenges of, of wokeism for like for bourgeois liberals like myself, you know, and the toll it takes to just kind of always be, you know, jumping over hoops to like say the right thing. 
Um, I like that book. I mean, Jonathan Franzen is, a, is an amazing writer. You know, he, he has a book coming out what around Halloween of 2021. And like, I'm going to buy it the day it comes out just to read it. Cause like, it's an event. He's a, he's a great writer. Yep. Yeah, no, he's, he's one of the best writers in, in my opinion. He's one of the best writers in our lifetime working in America, at least. I agree. So 2015 purity came out at the time I was reading it. I was like losing my shit. I was texting everybody to get it, to love it. Like it was like, you know, one of the rare uh, best book of the year I read type things. But in retrospect, it didn't, it didn't, it doesn't seem that great. It, It talks a lot about the theme is secrets. Everybody has them. Even if you're upstanding, you have a couple secrets, right? Or small secrets, big secrets, secrets from your kids, secrets from your sister. There's always something. And it, there's a character in there who's kind of like the Julian Assange um, type of person who, is a, who has a cult. Um, and, you know, this is before Julian. Julian Assange to me used to be fascinating. I don't want to get into it too far. But like when he was releasing information that was that no one knew before, that was wonderful. Then he got overly political and started siding with Trump. And who know, now he's who knows where. Um, but this was before that kind of downfall of Assange. Um, and it's a really good book. Um, Again, there's no real style. It's just like an excellent plot where this woman, she goes down to be in a cult like in the islands and they release secrets and it's it's pretty fun. So Chris, of the books, it sounds like The Corrections is your favorite. If people want to get into France and The Corrections is the one to read before they die. I would say so. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it's the best. I, I think it also, because it has all that extra outside context, it becomes interesting to think of it in light of that. What did you write your thesis about? I, I wrote it about sort of, it was, it was about the problems of writing American fiction. It was really taking up that essay that he had written about what it means to write a so-called American novel or the great American novel, uh, particularly in a time of multiculturalism where there's no one America, right? So uh, it was putting that, not that article in, or that essay in conversation with an essay David Foster Wallace wrote about um, television and how television mm-hmm. has changed the nature of fiction. You know that essay, Josh. The E. Pluribus Unum, that one? Yeah. Yeah, so it was about those two articles and then looking at their respective works and seeing how how they try to deal with the problems they they identified. Yeah, like in, we talked about this in, in DFW Pod, but like in E. Pluribus Unum, he mentions that like uh, John Updike used to fictionalize the name of McDonald's to like McDowell's just because he didn't want to have McDonald's in his novel and DFW is like, you can't do that anymore. Right. Everyone knows what you're talking about. It's McDonald's. Just, second. just fucking say, yeah. Um, okay. Okay. I was just gonna say in, in the first like 50 pages of the corrections, you have like free Mumia t-shirts, you have leather bags that smell like the inside of a Lexus. You have uh, Nordstrom bags. You, I mean, there's all kinds of brand names. It, it's very deliberately in a world that we can identify and recognize without trying to fictionalize it too much. Yeah, I think you have to now, right? That's kind of was that kind of the point, point of this? I think so. Yeah, like why why hide it? Like, and especially for Franzen's standpoint, who really wants to do the realist thing. Do you agree with his decision with Oprah? It seems like it probably weighs on him quite quite heavily. I think I think I don't want to say what how he feels now. I don't know, but it does seem like he acknowledges that it didn't go down the way he wanted. I, I think the whole thing just feels like he's. He, he feels a little misunderstood and I can understand that because at the time I did, I, I personally had a perception that Oprah's book club was not for so-called high art literature, but that in itself is a snobby thing to think. So since that time, those distinctions are really, really hard to make. And um, probably even at the time. 
Yeah, it's even more complicated by like this notion of postmodernism where mixing high culture with low culture where I'm like fully proud to admit now that I liked Oprah's interview with like with Harry and Meghan Markle. It's like a, it was like a cheap thrill, right? So it's it's like part of the postmodern project, right? Is like is the mixing of lowbrow and highbrow culture, which only adds a layer of complexity to the to Franson's persona. persona no? Yeah, well put. There's um, some work by some interesting sociologists who have who have studied taste and, and what it means to have to have these distinctions. And the compelling argument that I, the most compelling argument I've seen is that there used to be a model of sort of Highbrow and lowbrow, and you know, you you would listen to uh, Beethoven, but you would never listen to Beyonce if you were in the sort of the highbrow sort of thing. Right. But but that that model has since changed, and who knows when? It's probably gradual uh, to a omnivore uh, or or sort of univore model, where you you like if I said what kind of music do you like, it's probably a hard question, or what kind of books do you like, it's probably a hard question. Because you like all kinds of things. It depends on what mood. You listen to Beethoven in one moment, Beyonce the next moment. And so the the high-low distinction isn't as important so much as the capital that comes from having a diverse set of tastes and recognizing the benefits of all kinds of things. That seems to be where the status lies now. Yeah, that's well put. And like I, I used David Foster Wallace's uh, uh, graduation essay at Kenyon to kind of you know, the, the responsibility of being well-educated is to be kind, right? So if people ask me what my favorite book is, I'm not going to like, I don't feel the need to show off, right? I could just say like five or six different books that I like across the spectrum and, and let them kind of choose for themselves. All right. So Christopher, should folks read the corrections before they die? And if so, why? Yes. And they should, because it's a, it's a true pleasure to read. It reads easily. Uh, it offers something for just about any kind of reader. That's one of the brilliant things about it is it's doing sort of hijinksy, fancy literary moves, making all kinds of subtle allusions to the history of literature, while also being a very readable plot-driven story. Franzen is probably more than any other writer, at least in the pods we've done together, Josh, a plot-driven novelist. Yes, yes. He's got very, not necessarily labyrinthine or ornate, but interconnected complex plots that are grounded in human people uh, that make you invested in them. So yes, people should read it. I agree. And a lot of times like reading plot is easier, right? You can like, sometimes if I'm reading a book that's like purely like the language based and literary fiction, it's, you know, I'm always aware of what page I'm on or how long I've been reading. But with the plot, you look up and it's been an hour, it's been 40 pages. And I love that about his work as well. Um, I'd also say this book is like literally the last prior, you know, pre 9-11 novel. Um, It's a great snapshot of the nineties. It's a great, you know, I feel like, I feel like, 9-11 9-11 is kind of shrinking in importance with, with the pandemic. Um, but it, it did create a large shift in our consciousness and uh, Franzen captures extremely well kind of our, our mindset prior to that. It's also a really good family drama. You know, if you're, if you're tired of the pyrotechnics and a fancy literature, uh, this really is a return to kind of interpersonal relationships, which, you know, re- resonate with me more strongly often than, you know, going to Malta, which I've never done. Yeah, totally agree. All right, Christopher, thank you so much. So for the listeners, I would say out of the last three books, uh, my favorite is Corrections. Uh, Purity is number two and Freedom is number three, but you can't go wrong with any of them. And he has a new book coming out in October I and, I, and I recommend it. And it's it. part of a trilogy, allegedly. So I, you will be getting hooked into a bigger project. 
It's the first book of the, the trilogy? trilogy? That's what I understand, yeah. And then he also claims that he's going to... Re- this The trilogy is his last project, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, last thing, I want to give a shout-out to Larry McMurtry, who passed away today. Uh, we actually have not one but two pods about uh, Lonesome Dove. Um, in the library, go through it on iTunes or Spotify. Um, he wrote over 50 books and had a wonderful and prolific career. So RIP to him.